thank you for listening to our AUA University podcast. Today we return to our four-part series on emerging immunotherapeutic agents in the treatment of bladder cancer. At this time, I will turn you over to Dr. Robert Zvotek, Associate Professor of Urology at UT Health Sciences Center in San Antonio, Texas. Thank you. Well, welcome everyone to the second webinar of our series. This webinar is entitled Emerging Immunotherapeutic Agents for the Treatment of Bladder Cancer. We strive to offer outstanding educational courses and greatly appreciate your evaluations and general feedback so we are able to continuously improve upon the programs. Tonight we have two outstanding faculty members to present. Uh, the first is Dr. Peter Black. Peter Black is a, a urologic oncologist at Vancouver General Hospital. He's a research scientist at the Vancouver Prostate Center and an associate professor of the Department of Urologic Sciences at the University of the British Columbia. He completed his urologic training at the University of Washington in Seattle and subsequently a fellowship at in urologic oncology at MD Anderson in Houston. He is, has clinical subspecialty in both prostate and bladder cancer, as well as a very intensive translational research program. The, uh, actually, Peter will be the second presenter, and the first presenter is Dr. Parminder Singh. Parminder Singh is uh, assistant professor of medicine and the leader of the GU disease working group at Mayo Clinic, Arizona. His research interests are genitourinary cancers with a primary focus in bladder cancer. He is currently working on developing multiple clinical trials in bladder cancer, including improving bladder preservation outcomes in muscle invasive disease. Both Dr. Singh and Dr. Black are co-chairs for the recently opened SWOG trial, S1605, which is looking at investigating atezolizumab for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer that is BCG unresponsive. We'll hear a little bit more about that in today's webinar. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME and designates this Internet Live activity for a maximum of one Category 1 credit unit. Evaluations are very important to us. You will receive an email requesting that you complete an online evaluation and upon completion of the evaluation, you will have an opportunity to record your CME credit. Please complete the evaluation and claim CME credit. All persons in a position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose any relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. The AUA disclosure policy, education council disclosures, and faculty disclosures are listed here. It can be found in the online syllabus. The AUA would like to thank the following companies for providing educational grants in support of this webinar. Okay. So at this point, I'd like for, um, I think if we can bring up the next slides. So um, our, perfect. Um, we'll go right into the presentation. Parminder, if you want to take over. Sure. So, um, uh, you know, I saw that it, we have a predominant urology audience here um, today. Um, so I'm going to brief, um, in fact, spend three minutes on this slide just so that you understand the immune checkpoint inhibitors, why we are talking about them and how they play the role in the um, cancer treatment uh, and the current changes in the paradigms which they are bringing in all tumor types, in fact. So if, if we look towards the, uh, I'm going to use a pointer here. Um, 
the, the CDA T cell is the most important effector cell in this pathway, which has a role um, in destroying the tumor here on the right side. And so this cell is being activated by the antigen-presenting cells, which are using these blue dots, which are the tumor antigens, and they are presenting it through the uh, MHC class 1 and, and asking these cells to go and, and destroy the tumor cells on this side, in the tumor medium. Now, this interaction <clears throat> between the CD8 uh, T cell and the tumor can be inhibited by the interaction of these two proteins. This is, the blue one is a PD-1 uh, um, uh, on the CD8 T cell, and the PDL1 is a ligand which is present both on the macrophages and also the tumor cells. And once this interaction occurs, these CD8 T cells will not destroy this tumor. And so the inhibitors, the immune checkpoint inhibitors, are using this interaction as their medium to induce tumor, anti-tumor immunity. Uh, what these drugs are doing, they are going in to the patients and are coating either these PD-1 proteins or, or the ligands here, the PDL1s, so that this interaction doesn't occur, and then these CDA T cells are free to go in and cause tumor uh, kill. And that's how the, this pathway has come up as an immune checkpoint inhibitors. So we'll go to the next slide. So we'll, we'll take a brief look at the guidelines for managing metastatic bladder cancer before the checkpoint inhibitors came into, um, into this space. And so if we look at the NCCN, we have for the first line uh, in the chemotherapy, we have gemcitabine and cisplatin and uh, the combination MVAC, which are category one for patients who can tolerate cisplatin or they have good performance status. But if they cannot tolerate cisplatin, then carboplatin-based regimens become the first-line alternative. And in fact, for the second line, there is no standard therapy which existed before chemotherapy or with, before the immune therapy came into this space. And so looking at single-agent activity in second line in, in urothelial carcinoma, if we look at different drugs, uh, being it paclitaxel in different regimens, either weekly or three-weekly, or docetaxel or pemetrex, the activity ranges from somewhere from 7 to, 20, to 7 to 25% on very small studies with 14 to 40 patients um, and with, with median time to response varying from two months and survival ranging from seven to nine months. And this was uh, what uh, the treatment of bladder cancer was for last, um, uh, since the gemstabine came into the play and for last 14, 15 years, we have been using single agents in the second line space with, with minimal activity. Hey, Parminder, can you, can you go back one slide? Yes. So would you say that uh, any of those four regimens there is kind of considered standard of care? What would be the most common second line agent be before the era of checkpoint inhibitors? So this is more or less dealer choice. Um, physicians who are comfortable with whichever drug, uh, they prefer to use those drugs. Um, we have drugs in all um, uh, neoplastic regimen uh, classes which are being used in, in urothelial carcinoma. I just mentioned these four because these are common ones which are used. Uh, for a physician like me who is more used to uh, treating uh, GU cancers, I'm more comfortable with uh, taxane, so I use docetaxel or paclitaxel. Physicians who also overlap with lung uh, and bladder, they may be more inclined towards using Pemetrex as 
Hemotrex is more used in lung cancer. But essentially, in second-line space, we know that these drugs have more or less palliative role rather than the intent is palliative um, and durable remissions are unheard of uh, with, at the second-line settings. So we'll go to the next slide. And so then in this space came the first drug, atezolizumab, um, which was studied in this um, phase one uh, and going into a phase two extension cohort in the, in the bladder cancer patients, where over 310 patients received atezolizumab. These patients had tumor assessments every nine weeks for the first 12 months and then every 12 weeks thereafter. And we started seeing responses in these patients who had uh, progressed on cisplatin-based therapy with very good responses uh, with this drug. And when these patients were followed uh, in patients, these three lines reflect uh, the staining of PD-L1 on the immune cells. And uh, the cells, the blue line reflects the cells which had high degree of staining, uh, whereas the red and the green reflects the low degree of staining, which is IC0 or IC1. The drug was active in all tumors with all, all classification, whether they had a high expression or a low expression. But what we did see that patients who had high expression, the median overall survival was up to 11 months. At 12-month time point, 48% patients in the high expression group were responding to these drugs. And 66% and of these patients had visceral metastases. And these are the patients who, who uh, fare poorly once they develop liver or lung metastases, they progress very fast. And 48% and of those were responding if they had high expression of PDL1. Um, I'm not saying that the drug works more in PDL1. What I'm trying to say is that there is activity in both low expression and high expression patients. And there was, this study was not designed to make a difference between these um, two subgroups, although there was some difference which was observed. Similarly, pembrolizumab, which is a PD one antibody was studied in a phase three randomized fashion where the half of patients received chemotherapy of physician choice, including paclitaxel, docetaxel, and venflurane, which is approved in Europe uh, and not in the U.S. So since the study was done across uh, the ocean, and so uh, venflurane was an option. Uh, and when these patients were followed uh, in the pembrolizumab, um, the overall survival and the PFS was clearly better. Um, if we look at the uh, the PFS curves here, just to point out that initially the chemotherapy appeared better uh, than the immunotherapy took over at the later stages. And this, this does, does give us a hint that if we want to debulk the tumor quickly initially, we may use chemotherapy and then switch them on to immune therapy. But again, uh, we saw around 15 to 20% patients who were responding and having durable responses with this therapy and the drug was recently approved for metastatic urothelial carcinoma. The third one is nivolumab, is another PD-1, which was studied again in a phase two trial where 270 patients were enrolled and they were followed for a minimum of six months. And again, median overall survival of this group of patients was around eight months. With patients who had high PD-L1 expression, their median overall survival was reaching 11 months. So, um Parminder, so I, yes. I'm really going back to that one slide, and I'm going to just move us back here a moment. Um, I thought this was an important observation you made regarding the activity of chemotherapy early on. So 
my question is, is this now becoming, um, I guess, is it more common now to give a trial of chemotherapy first before trying uh, a checkpoint inhibitor, or do you feel that most medical oncologists will go right to the um, uh, uh, to the, the the checkpoint inhibitors or a trial uh, straight away? So it's a very good question, Rob. So the situation is these drugs are approved in second-line space, uh, and so these patients are technically progressing on chemotherapy. And most of these patients, um, these clinical trials included patients who had progressed um, within last 12 months of receiving cisplatin-based therapy. Now, in clinical practice, most of our patients are receiving chemotherapy for their advanced stage disease, and they are progressing, and then they, we are immediately switching them to immune therapy. So then these patients would not technically receive another line of chemotherapy uh, because they are just progressing off chemotherapy, uh, which will technically be a combination chemotherapy, whereas in a, in, a, in a small subset of group of patients where we will see that these patients who had received neoadjuvant chemotherapy for localized disease, they underwent radical cystectomy, and within six months they present on their first CT, or three months they present on their CT with large liver metastases after radical cystectomy. So they are technically within three to six months of receiving cisplatin-based therapy where they are eligible to receive immunotherapy. In that group of patients, I would uh, rather give them uh, chemotherapy and then debulk um, disease a little bit and then move on to immune therapy. So it's more of a subjective clinical practice type, uh, type decision rather than something which is uh, dictated by guidelines. I hope that answer. Yeah. That, that's, that's a good point. So, and, and, and would the patient's performance status may influence your option there as well? I, I would think Absolutely. that a, exactly, a poor performance status, yeah. may, you might be more inclined to give it a checkpoint inhibitor as opposed yes. to a, a, a second-line uh, chemotherapeutic agent. Absolutely, because the poor performance, so the poor performance status can be defined as poor performance status due to the disease bulk, or is it the baseline poor performance status of the patient being an old, um, frail patient? And if the performance status, in my observation, is due to the tumor bulk, then I may still be inclined towards giving one or two rounds of chemotherapy and then switching to uh, immune therapy. But if uh, at patient I'm seeing a 92-year-old gentleman, you know, he's very frail, and now he has one liver metastasis, uh, and so then I may just try immune therapy in him first. Okay, great. I'll move you, I'll move you back. Okay, thank you. So we'll go to the next slide. And uh, so this uh, drovalumab is another... Uh, a drug PDL1, which is now um, approved um, for bladder cancer, uh, since this slide deck was made. This was an abstract which was presented earlier this year, which again showed that the activity of these immune uh, checkpoint inhibitors were, was observed in both tumors with PDL1 high and PDL1 low, and we ha we saw tumor reduction in tumor volume and patients achieving long-term responses. Um, and so, uh, just to put them all together, I wanted to bring to your notice is that if all these drugs put together, the overall response rate is in the range of 15 to 20%, which means one out of five or one out of six patients will respond to these drugs. Not everybody is responding to these drugs. Yes, especially if the patients have high PDL1 uh, staining in their tumor immune cells, uh, they may respond better. Uh, we see here 26% response rate. 
28%. So one in four may respond if they have high expression. But if you have a low expression, they may still respond. Um, and so uh, every patient who has progressed on chemotherapy should be given a trial of immune therapy with the, intent, with the understanding to that one out of six or one out of five will respond. And then uh, if they are responding, which will be our next slide, they will show long-term responses. Here, in all uh, drugs together, uh, this is a pembrolizumab trial, this is uh, nivolumab, and we see that patients are responding and they are continue to respond up to 24 weeks here, and in months here, we see up to 18 months patients are responding. And this slide, again, uh, brings that to your attention that although the response rates are in the range of 15 to 20 percent, but if you are responding these patients six, at six months' time point, 70 to 80 percent patients will keep responding. And so this is the benefit of the immune therapy which we are seeing, which was not seen before with chemotherapy. I just want to address uh, a, a comment, uh, or sorry, a question from, from uh, the, the audience. Um, the question is in regards to why did some patients respond that are PDL1 negative? And we, we discussed this a little bit in more detail in the first webinar uh, that, that you can look at through either a webcast or podcast. But in short, we don't completely, ex you know, understand exactly um, why PDL1 therapies and PD1 therapies work. I mean, clearly there is an interaction, uh, an inhib inhibition of the interaction between the T cell and the tumor. That, that's a part of it. Uh, just this month, just um, this week actually, it's a Nature publication uh, on the importance of PD-1 expression on macrophages. So not not PDL1, but PD-1 on macrophages playing a role in the response to these drugs. So I think as we learn more and more about the biology, we're starting to realize that other cells, not tumor cells, but other immune cells and stroma, fibroblasts, things like that, may influence the response to these drugs, and that's, that may be why we're seeing disparate results in terms of PDL1 predicting responsiveness. I agree with Rob, and not just that, the interaction of PD1 and PDL1, there are other immune checkpoint pathways which are playing a role here in the tumor and immune milieu, which include CTLA4, and there are other ligands which are involved. And we, at this point, don't understand which pathway is playing a more important role in the tumor interaction in that particular patient. And so there are more other forms of small molecule inhibitors are coming in clinical trials, which will be exploring uh, either combination with immune check uh, with PD-1, PD-L1 antibodies, or by themselves in combination with other types of treatments to see if we can alter the immune pathways to help achieve uh, durable responses in, in resistant tumors. So it is not just this interaction playing a role in tumor immune uh, mechanisms, but there are other pathways also. And so to understand the response, bio, there are biomarkers which were looked at in the, all these clinical trials. But what we saw that um, in terms of clinical subgroups, the performance status, hemoglobin, or risk factors, Patients in all spectra were responding. Uh, there were other translational works which were done, including um, interferon signatures, chemokine signatures, which were evaluated. And there was some signal of activity more in one group than the other. But again, uh, these were more associations than, than were uh, truly predictive 
um, of the activity. In the atezolizumab trial, in fact, on the exploratory analysis, TCGS subtypes, luminal type 2, and mutation load did stand out as an independent predictive for response, but at the same time, these were uh, secondary analysis, but they have the drug approval is, is blanket, and so we are moving forward with use of these drugs in all, all types of uh, um, patient subtypes. And the same for pembrolizumab, where the responses were observed in all clinical subgroups and irrespective of the PDL1 status. So just go over briefly um, over the, uh, the drug administration. These drugs are easy to administer. They are given either uh, every two weeks or every three weeks. Nivolumab, which is given every two weeks, is being studied as a three-week infusion in, a, in a new clinical trials, and it's likely that all these drugs may become two-weekly. Uh, the infusion-related adverse events are very, very low risk. In fact, we don't even recommend giving Benadryl uh, prior to the first infusion, except in the Avalumab, which is another drug which got approved, where the Benadryl is advised to be administered, but otherwise all these drugs require no pre-medication. And uh, treatment follow-up, what we look for is a response in imaging at around 9 to 11 weeks of treatment. Uh, we do understand the concept of pseudo-progression where the patients may show that they are progressing on imaging, but clinically they may be stable, which may reflect what we call a pseudo-progression, what we interpret as an immune response causing swelling in the tumor, leading to increase in size in the scans. But at the same time, we need to understand, we have to remember that 80 to 85% of these patients are not going to respond to immune therapies in an unselected cohort. And so most of these patients will progress uh, in spite of the fact that these drugs are so promising that these patients are progressing and will require next line of therapies. Looking at the adverse uh, event, yes. Hey, Parminder, sorry. Before we get into adverse events, I want to address a question. The question was uh, back to PD-1 and pd one expression. How do we test for this serologically? Um, so I, I don't know if the question is actually serologically. Typically what's done is the tumor is tested using immunohistochemistry. Um, I, I, and I don't know if um, the question is with regards to how can it be tested from blood. I mean, you could test PD-1 or pdl one expression on circulating immune cells, but what has been done in clinical trials thus far is looking at the tumor itself and or the tumor infiltrating lymphocytes using immunohistochemistry. And these tests are now provided by various um, tumor profiling labs, including Caris and Foundation, and they, they provide the IHC staining for this. Um, and they are offering it among their panel of testing, which we do routinely for, uh, as medical oncologists uh, taking care of these patients. But do you routinely get um, PDL1 staining now on your, uh, when you obtain, let's say, a, a biopsy for metastatic bladder cancer? Yes. So, you know, these uh, services which we are using, uh, Foundation and Caris, they are routinely providing that as part of their package. Um, and so, um, you know, it, I don't think we can unselect that uh, from their package uh, since it's being offered as part of it. And so whosoever is getting now new biopsies, they are getting this as their, one of their results, even if we have not asked for. Um, 
uh, and uh, but at the same time we are not using it uh, to decide our treatment at this point yet. And P Peter, what about you? Do you get PD one, PDL one staining routinely in uh, let's say muscle invasive disease? Uh, no, never. But I think um, there's, there's, you know, in the in the non-metastatic setting, there's not an indication for these drugs right now. Um, but even uh, so, the, the the infrastructure that Parminder is talking about, we don't necessarily have. And uh, since we're not using PDL1 staining to guide treatment, uh, we're not actually pursuing that as a routine test. So moving on to the treatment-related adverse effects. Uh, so if you look at this table, I just took a tezolizumab table as a representative of this, uh, this drug class. And it, it kind of feeds well into the general class side effects. And we see that if we look at the grade 3, 4 side effects, which are, the, which are more clinically relevant for us, uh, up to 15% of the patients will have grade 3, 4 side effects. And most of them are fatigue, uh, decreased appetite, some pruritus, pyrexia. Uh, but very rarely will have a serious side effects like pneumonitis, uh, colitis in 1% of the patient, uh, which will um, cause the patient some degree of morbidity. And so if, trying to see if we can separate out um, PDL1 from PD1 in terms of the side effects, we do see that pneumonitis is more prevalent in the PD1 inhibitors as compared to the TESO, uh, which is a PDL1, but at the same time, uh, you know, the grade 3, 4 side effect intensity is in the same 15 to 16% range. Drovalumab data is still early. We have a small uh, trial. Uh, I'm sure once we have more patients on it, we'll see more um, uh, toxicities in the similar range uh, matching with the, uh, with the other drugs. Parminder, I have two questions. So um, are these toxicities um, cumulative? Uh, like in chemotherapy, or is it um, kind of all or, all or nothing? It's a very good question. So these, um, as we have seen, the toxicities are not cumulative, although there are some toxicities which are coming early and some are usually coming later. For example, hypothyroidism or endocrinopathies, we are seeing later as these patients, many of, the, many of my own patients are two years or two and a half years on these. They were on clinical trials initially. Now the drugs are approved and they are still receiving it. Uh, and so we see hypothyroidism and endocrinopathies later on. Uh, earlier on, we may see hepatitis, um, colitis, or pneumonitis may come on early. Um, and so there is some degree of difference um, where which which toxicity may appear where. Uh, but as far as the cumulative, as we used to, we are more used to in chemotherapy. It, that's not the pattern which these drugs follow. Do these most of these cases of uh, toxicity, do they require hospitalization? Um, if I'm a urologist um, who's seeing one of my patients with one of these, uh, what I suspect is a uh, side effect from treatment, um, what would you recommend I do and um, what do most of these patients need? Do they need hospital hospitalization? It's a good point. Um, the thing is now since the approval of Ipilimumab 2009-2010, it's already seven, eight years we've been using these drugs in different tumor types. Um, and we are now getting more and more used to dealing with immune checkpoint toxicity. Um, most of us are very preemptive. We look at these patients prior to their infusions. 
We ask questions which may suggest um, early onset immune-related side effect. The blood works may give you an idea that the liver enzymes are starting to go up. And so I personally, in my practice, um, I have not admitted any patient recently in the last one and a half years, uh, or even more maybe. Um, yes, when combining two different checkpoint inhibitors for different different disease setting, I have still I've, I've seen to severe toxicity for which admission is required. But as single agent, these drugs are safe enough that if properly monitored during their infusions and we preemptively hold treatment and start steroids, if we see something which is bad coming, we can very easily manage these toxicities. Okay. Thanks. And just a question from the audience. Are these drugs available outside clinical trials? And if so, what is their cost? So these drugs are technically all now approved for bladder cancer. So if you want to explore them in bladder cancer, they are approved for advanced stage disease setting. Um, their cost by itself is very expensive. All immune therapies are very expensive. Um, will reach easily in $10,000 and above uh, in their infusion cost because there are other costs including infusion and nursing charges which are built on. So the actual cost that the patient may incur will be very high. Uh, but then at the same time, um, you know, these drugs are already approved in bladder cancer, and, and we can find a case to give uh, these drugs, and you know, they can be given uh, in, in, in proper setting. Now, in most cases, uh, you know, if they're FDA approved um, for, the, for the indication, the insurance will cover the cost. Uh, has that been your experience, Arminder? Yes, I have not seen any um, uh, patient being refused. Uh, although we did, uh, so we had an issue where a patient was on nivolumab on a clinical trial, and he was responding, and the clinical trial closed, and uh, we were able to convince the insurance to keep providing the patient nivolumab uh, prior to the approval of nivolumab in this space. And then once the, the drug received the approval, we then were able to bill um, the insurance properly. But the insurance was still paying it even prior to the approval. Parminder, can I ask you a question? Just you have this slide up with the four drugs. Uh, can you comment on the fifth drug as well? Yes, very good point. So, Avalumab is another drug which is now approved in the same space and which has a similar pattern of toxicity and activity, um, and and will be uh, which should have been on this table since we presented last time. It was not there, but now it, the drug is already approved. Uh, but the same toxicities and same response patterns, 11 months, the median survival, uh, and it matches up with the class of drugs. So I'll say these side effects are more like class side effects which we are seeing, and uh, the management is same, the pattern is same, the response patterns are same, and it will be very difficult as a practicing oncologist to decide which drug I'm going to choose um, for infusion in, in a particular patient. That will be our next question. So how to decide which one to give as our first option. So among the toxicities, we usually check for liver functions. Uh, we'll look for TSH every second infusion. Um, and we, uh, we evaluate the patient for any autoimmune toxicity. Uh, we hold the treatment if we have grade 3 or higher side effects, um, except in the endocrine if there is patient is hypothyroid. Even with higher grades of toxicity, we just supplement them. Uh, patients may get diabetes, and they can be supplemented with insulin. Um, and so we, we will tolerate those toxicities at the cost of response. 
But if they have other kinds of grade 3 or higher toxicity, then these treatments are held. Patients are started on immune suppression using steroids, high-dose steroids, and a very slow taper. Um, and we should not restart these drugs unless the patient is uh, on less than 10 milligrams of prednisone or equivalent dose um, after their taper. Among the interactions, uh, we felt that immune suppressive therapies can potentially diminish response to therapy, and so most of these clinical trials excluded patients who were receiving steroids at a higher dose. But anecdotally, uh, I have a patient who had melanoma, and he got a liver transplant, and he had recurrence in the liver trans transplanted liver, and then we were able to give him um, immune therapy on the top of his immune suppressive um, medication, and he still responded. So it is still to be seen how all the uh, medic the other immune suppressive medications will play in um, with the role of um, immune therapy. But at this point, patients who are requiring high-dose steroids, we are staying away from giving them immune, therapy, immune checkpoint inhibitors. So, Parminder, that, that's a pretty remarkable uh, story. So how long did that patient's response last? Uh, he's, he's in remission. We actually took him off Keytruda um, last month. Um, and uh, he, he's, uh, he works for the electric company here in Phoenix. And, um, you know, he's, he's working. He's that's great. great. Yeah. Well, so, so, uh, that's, so you brings up another point is when do you take them off treatment when is the uh, when he and you know how, how is that decided it's a very good question and it's a dilemma right now patients who are having side effects it's easy to say that maybe it's time to stop um, among the patients who still have residual disease on the scans it is again difficult uh, discussion uh, that we are taking you off therapy uh, and this treatment may be holding back your cancer but especially in patients in whom the CT had complete response, uh, which we are seeing in these patients, uh, we are able to convince them uh, after they have received three to four months uh, of therapy that maybe it's time to hold treatment and then evaluate another three months. If you're responding now and if you have progression later, it is likely that you'll respond to these drugs. And so these discussions come up and then some patients agree to go off therapy and some patients insist to go stay on the treatment. Um, but it is an open question. We don't know the duration of treatment, which is appropriate, uh, but it is case by case at this point. But we, I personally try to take patients off who are in complete remission um, after I have seen two or three scans, uh, in, in, in a, in a, then there, there is no recurrence, and I try to take them off treatment. And have you seen, anecdotally, have you seen, um, if you've taken them off therapy, um, and then they relapse. You start them back on a checkpoint inhibitor. Uh, have you done that, first of all? And if you've done that, have you seen uh, uh, responses um, in, in that situation where you started them back up again with a checkpoint inhibitor? I knew I was trapping myself into that. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I... Uh, I, for for now, you know, uh, none of my patients who I've taken off, um, it, they have we have not seen any recurrences uh, in their subsequent scans. So we are still following them, uh, but it would be interesting to see if they recur, um, if they respond again or not. Okay. All right. Well, um, at this point, I think our next slide is going to take us to a different disease site. So, Peter, if you can get your webcam, get your there we go. Peter's going to take us through BCG and responsive disease. Okay. Thank you, Rob. Um, 
I'm going to take a couple of steps back and talk, uh, first of all, generally about how we treat non-muscle invasive disease, and then we'll um, hone in on the immunotherapy in the later slides. So every patient with a bladder tumor starts, of course, with a TURBT um, or a biopsy. And then for the non-muscle invasive patients, we use intravesical therapy in a risk-adapted fashion. And, and the important part is really assigning a risk to every patient, so low risk, intermediate risk, or high risk. The AUA guidelines on non-muscle invasive disease were updated in 2016, and they have modified the risk stratification uh, to some degree. I think low risk is, is easy and intuitive. It's a single low-grade tumor, less than three centimeters, uh, including the papillary neoplasia of low malignant potential. The high risk, we'll leave the intermediate risk out for a second. The high risk patients, for the most part, are patients with high-grade tumors, T1 tumors, and carcinoma in situ. What has changed is, or what, what we might not be as familiar with, is that a, a single first-time um, high-grade TA tumor would be considered intermediate risk, and high risk is only if it's recurrent or if it's larger. Uh, we also see, for example, the variant histology and president, presence of LVI goes into high risk. And then the intermediate risk ends up being the everything else, but for the most part, these are recurrent or multi multifocal uh, low-grade tumors. So when we think of uh, using this risk stratification for deciding on intravesical therapy, we would say that low-risk patients really just need a single dose of perioperative chemotherapy. The intermediate risk patients, we would consider either intravesical chemo or BCG uh, in an adjuvant fashion, so induction plus maintenance. Um, if a patient with intermediate risk disease recurs with further low, low grades, so further intermediate risk disease, then we would consider further intravesical therapy and it would, it would take uh, a little bit before we consider um, cystectomy. For the high-risk patients, though, clearly BCG is the standard of care. It's the only drug that's shown has, has been proven to reduce the risk of progression. And if BCG fails, then a patient typically would move on to radical cystectomy in the high-risk setting. So BCG uh, remains a uh, mainstay for intravesical therapy, particularly for the high-risk patients. It's been around now for 40 years. But of course, there are, are several scenarios where, where it uh, underperforms. So there are patients, of course, who don't tolerate it due to toxicity. There are patients who are ineligible for it because of immunosuppression, for example. And then there are patients uh, who recur despite it. So this diagram is supposed to show um, different disease states. And in prostate cancer, we're quite used to thinking of disease states, but I think we can also think about non-muscle invasive bladder cancer in the same fashion. If we, sorry, I'm just getting the arrow here. If we look at uh, the first column here are the low-grade tumors, and then we have high-grade carcinoma in situ and TA, and then high-grade T1. And we would, we should separate these two. High-grade T1 are really more threatening of a higher risk of progression than the TAs and the, and the carcinoma in situ. But if we start at the bottom, so primary tumor, low grade, as I said, this patient would get a single dose perioperative chemo. If they recur, they are now intermediate risk, and then we would treat with intravesical chemo or BCG. 
If they recur again, we consider we can consider the other. So if they had BCG, now give them chemo. If they had chemo, now give them BCG. For any high-risk tumor or high-grade tumor, we would give BCG. If it's a, a carcinoma in situ or TA, uh, we would consider salvage intravesical therapy, recognizing that the risk of progression is not as high in the short term, and we have a window of opportunity to try something before moving on to cystectomy. Whereas for the BCG failing high-grade T1, we would move right to cystectomy. And so we have uh, first-line therapy and then BCG unresponsive uh, therapy. So that's this term so BCG... Peter, yeah? Hey, Peter, sorry, I'm going to go back. You know, because one of the disease sites that I'm often confronted with is, and, and, and I want to get your thoughts about this too, I have patients that have some amount of BCG, but not enough to where I would consider them BCG unresponsive. Where would those patients fit in here, and, and what's, your, what's your typical approach to treating those patients? So an, a typical example that I'll see is a patient that's been sent to me for BCG failure who's only received, let's say, an induction course. They haven't received the maintenance course, or they received induction way in the past, and then got another three weeks more recently, um, and then they're sent to me for failure. And I'm sure you've seen these patients too. Or, or maybe you haven't. In, in Canada, maybe everything's more standardized. But what's your approach to, the, to those patients? Yeah, I don't think it's any different uh, north of the border. Um, the, so I think the, the, the definition of BCG unresponsive, um, which I'll, I'll describe on the next slide, is really about defining a patient population who should not get any more BCG because it's unlikely to work and they are likely to progress. Um, so if a patient hasn't had enough BCG to meet the, the definition, then I think it's a possibility for us uh, to, to give additional BCG or to try another intravesical therapy. Um, and so what do you do? Do you, do, do you do? do you just restart BCG? Do you give BCG with interferon? Or do you do intravesical chemo? Yeah, depends a little bit on the timing. So if... Uh, what I see, for example, frequently is patients have carcinoma in situ, they get induction BCG only, and they have persistent disease at three months, and then I see them. And typically those patients I would reinduce with BCG. It's too early to, turn, to deem that that's a failure. It's too early to, to say the patient needs a cystectomy. So I would usually reinduce with BCG um, at that point. If, if the patient has had, if it's more like, the, um, the high grade, the carcinoma situ that's had induction and a first round of maintenance, then often I'll add in the interferon more just to do something different rather than actually being based on on real data. I think intravesical chemotherapy, you know, it just doesn't work very well in the high grade tumors. I, I use intravesical chemo more frequently for low grade tumors that are recurrent and multifocal. Okay, thanks. So now the, the definition... Oh, sorry. I'm sorry, Peter. So we've got a question here. How yeah. successful are you in convincing uh, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer patients, let's say TA or T1, in accepting radical cystectomy? I'll, I'll let you answer that. Uh, I'm very persuasive. So, uh, it, you know, it, it's all in how you, you sell it to the patient and, and uh, you know, how, how you explain the risk. 
I find that if you tell a patient with carcinoma in situ or TA disease that, that the best we can do with additional intravesical therapy is that they'll be disease-free in 20% 20 of the time. So the best we, we can do is a two-year recurrence-free survival of 20%. Um, and it makes patients recognize that for the most part, we're delaying the inevitable. And in the meantime, there's a risk of progression and this turning into something bad. So for the most part, I, I don't find it, it difficult to, to explain to the patient that needs a cystectomy. There are, of course, a lot of patients with marginal health status and, and high operative risks, um, and those patients, you know, may, maybe it's better not to do cystectomy. Yeah. I, I find, you know, um, still early in my practice, but uh, I've seen a couple of patients that were T1 high-grade patients and were managed on operatively without cystectomy, and uh, it was clearly the wrong decision. So I think, you know, you've seen a couple of these patients and you, you, you realize how important it is to be aggressive up front, and I think it, you can make a pretty convincing argument. Uh, with TA disease, I, I think it is a little harder, um, and, I, and I'm more, uh, you know, uh, aggressive in my TURBT strategy. I often feel like if I can completely resect them that I can have a better chance of, of freeing in the disease. But with T1, I think it's a pretty deadly disease if, mis if mismanaged. Yeah, I think we need to be really careful with the, the T1s. So the this this term BCG unresponsive has has evolved. Peter, can I interrupt you too for one second? Sure. Uh, so, is there a role for radiation in this space? Um, so radiation, not, not for carcinoma in situ, not for TA. There 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 is some experience with radiation for high grade T1. Um, there was a trial in the UK that showed that radiation wasn't necessarily any better than BCG as a first-line treatment, but they didn't give any chemosensitizing or radiation-sensitizing chemotherapy. Uh, there's a, an experience, a report from Germany, the group in Erlangen, uh, they described pretty good results using um, chemoradiation. So it's, it's always worth a consideration. I would say we do it extremely rarely for high-grade T1 disease. Thank you. you know, and I, I, Parminder, the other question along these lines, just maybe a, a little early to talk about, but is radiation not for uh, kind of clearance of the tumor, but for improving the immune response? Um, so I think there are, you're going to see several trials coming out looking at lower doses, small fractions of radiation to improve immune response. Um, it, it may be in metastatic disease, but we could also consider that in local disease. It's something for us to think about moving forward. Uh, could, could improve response to BCG or other uh, immune agents. Sure, yeah. Yeah, that, that is part of uh, the trial design concept that uh, Noah Hahn is, is working on, so in, in non-muscle invasive disease. So the... the um, the BCG unresponsive term is, is relatively new. It's, it's evolved out of the term BCG refractory, and it's really being defined by consultations between the AUA and the FDA, as highlighted by these three uh, citations on this slide. But it's, so the definition is here, and it's used on the one hand for clinical trial design, but it's also important for clinical practice because, as I said, these are the patients who really should not get any more BCG. So 
BCGN responsive would be any patient with a high-grade tumor who uh, recurs after receiving induction plus at least one round of maintenance or a second round of induction. They can have, more, have had more than that, but they need to have at least that amount of BCG, with the exception that a patient with a high-grade T1 tumor at three months, so after the induction only, is considered BCG unresponsive. So you, you would not give a high-grade T1 patient any more BCG if they recur after induction. Um, the definition also applies to patients who achieve a complete response or, or are disease-free at six months, or at any time, but subsequently recur within six months of the last dose of BCG. So they could, for example, have two years of BCG, they're, they're on maintenance, and then they have a recurrence within six months of the last dose. Importantly, a low-grade TA tumor does not qualify as a recurrence to, to meet the criteria for, for BCG unresponsive. So what Rob was referring to earlier is a little bit of what we call BCG failure. Uh, it's, n it's not a real term, but this, but this term is being used a little bit now. And, and they're intermediate and high-risk patients who've had only induction BCG, um, or they've recurred within the last six months, with, with, sorry, with longer than six months after the last BCG. And these are patients who could get more BCG. And so in the clinical trial setting, you can imagine patients being randomized to either more BCG or to a novel drug. And so getting into the immunotherapy part of this, obviously BCG is immunotherapy, so as urologists we've been using immunotherapy in bladder cancer now for 40 years, but there's a lot going on, a lot of new drugs uh, for immunotherapy in, in non-muscle invasive disease. On the one hand, there's enhanced BCG, and I'll, I'll describe that on the next slide. There are a couple of vaccine treatments being developed, there are at least a couple of viral therapies, and then of course the checkpoint inhibitors, just as Parminder talked about. So the first trial here, the BCG vaccination trial, this is actually one that, uh, that Rob Svatek is leading through SWOG, where patients receive an intradermal BCG vaccination prior to the intravesical therapy, and patients are randomized to either receive this or not receive it, and there's good preliminary uh, evidence that this will make a real difference and patients will respond better. There's also uh, there's several efforts underway, but uh, there's one uh, enhanced BCG that is actually in clinical trial where the BCG has been genetically modified to express the listeria toxin, which enhances uh, efficacy by improving um, antigen presentation. There's a the third one, this, um, can't even pronounce it, the Vesiginertasyl-L is an intradermal vaccine. Um, this is based on cell lines out of the lab that are that are injected and they have a a lot of uh, bladder cancer uh, antigens. The PANVAC virus-based vaccine therapy is another vaccine. Then there's um, the interferon adenovirus, which is instilled into the bladder. The virus is taken up and the, and the cells actually produce interferon, which helps clear tumor. This is in a, a, a what's been called a phase three trial, a single arm phase three trial. And then the final one here is an oncolytic virus, also for intravesical insulation. So the, the main take-home point here, there are a lot of trials ongoing, uh, specifically in immunotherapy for non-muscle invasive disease. Checkpoint inhibitors are, are the main focus of 
of our, our talk this evening and um, are very exciting also in the non-muscle invasive disease setting. The rationale for this is on the one hand, we know immunotherapy works, BCG works. We know from animal models that uh, these drugs can, can work in non-muscle invasive disease. We know that PDL1, so the ligand uh, for these drugs, is expressed in non-muscle invasive disease and especially after BCG therapy. And then just the, the enthusiasm and the excitement around um, the efficacy of these drugs in metastatic settings makes us keen to try them in, in the non-metastatic setting. Uh, so this is one trial that uh, is ongoing. Uh, Rob mentioned this. Permanent and I are, are PIs on this trial. It's open across the U.S. and, and Canada. And it's testing a tezolizumab in patients with BCGN-responsive uh, high-risk non-muscle disease. So it's a single-arm trial. All patients will get the atezolizumab. Um, they have to meet the, this relatively strict definition of BCGN-responsive. And they get the drug by intravenous infusion every three weeks for one year. The endpoint is um, the complete response rate at six months in patients with CIS and recurrence-free survival at 18 months for everybody. This is another very similar trial. It's, it's, the design is, is almost the same. It's a larger trial. The, the SWOG trial is 148 patients. This is 260 patients, but very similar design. And there's actually a smaller third trial testing Dervalumab in the same setting. So there's you know, some optimism that, that these checkpoint inhibitors will be able to overcome uh, the resistance to BCG by reactivating the immune system. Uh, so lots of activity, and, and I think as, as urologists, it's important for us to, to support these trials. So back to you, Rob. Okay, thanks, Peter. Uh, that was a, a really nice um, summary of how things are going to change for the BCG and responsive population or how things were looking up. All right. Well, um, I want to let's see if we have this. I think um, I want to thank, first of all, uh, Parminder and Peter for the outstanding presentations and um, I want to welcome everybody to uh, look at uh, the prior webinar the first webinar in the AUA uh, bladder cancer education series is immunotherapy from research to practice and it's now available as a webcast and a podcast and both are complimentary and if you're unable to join us for those webinars uh, you can visit the AUA University to access. You will, again, a reminder that you will receive an email requesting that you complete an online evaluation. And upon completion of that evaluation, you will have an opportunity to record your CME credit. Please complete the evaluation and claim your credit. Finally, please join us uh, to continue our complimentary AUA Bladder Cancer Educational Series on either Tuesday, June 20th or Monday, June 26th for AUA New Muscle Invasive Bladder Cancer Guidelines with Dr. Todd Matthew Morgan. Uh, visit auanet.org to register. Thank you, everyone, and have a good evening.